Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Hello everybody, welcome along. It is another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast. And as sometimes happens, we are able to go into a different world and go and talk about something completely different from the current um, because today is a book review with David Woodhouse, my guest. I'll bring him on in just a second, but just a little bit of housekeeping and announcement to make. We've um, decided that on the Cricket Badger Podcast, we're going to do some awards every year and they're not going to be kind of like your typical awards, best batsman, best bowler, but we're going to basically celebrate the Cricket Badgers out there, the enthusiastic cricket lovers amongst us it could be a player it could be a, just a, a fan it could be somebody that bombards twitter regularly with their love of the game and so uh, we're going to be announcing our first recipients that go into the set of fame it's not going to be the hall of fame badges live in a set so it's going to be a set of fame and the first four will be announced on uh, the 14th of february which seemed to be a pretty appropriate date really to uh, celebrate the love of the game so that's all going to be coming up around the corner so look out for that as we go through but uh, today I have pleasure in uh, welcoming David Woodhouse onto the podcast. He's written this terrific book, Who Only Cricket Know, and it's uh, Hutton's Men in the West Indies, 1953-54. to And David, welcome to the podcast, first and foremost. Thank you very much for having me on, James. It's good to have you on. And this is a tour that I I didn't know a huge amount about. I, I kind of um, I like to think that I kind of keep abreast of cricket, even before the time I was born. But uh, this is a tour to the West Indies. Len Hutton, the first professional captain of England, led the, the MCC, as it was always known, the touring party, then to the West Indies. And it was a tour that was pretty good on the pitch, but also had a lot going on off the pitch too. Yes. Um, it's remarkable, really, I think, um, you know, how, how um, little known in some ways this tour is, considering how controversial it was. I mean, everyone knows about Bodyline. You know, yeah. which was 20 years earlier. And if, if we think about Bodyline, I suppose it had three things in particular. It had the intimidation of batsmen, systematic intimidation, 
it had the diplomatic incident, you know, where telegrams were sent between Australia and England. And it had that court martial afterwards where Larwood and Jardine got essentially got sidelined. And this series has all of those things. You know, five batsmen were put in hospital. There was all kinds of telegrams between um, what were then the colonies and MCC in London. The government got less involved. And after the tour, Truman was effectively banned from touring for five years. Hutton was nearly removed as captain. Trevor Bailey was removed as vice captain. So it has all those things. As you say, it has remarkable cricket. England were 2-0 down, almost as badly sort of dead and buried as, as we were a moment ago in Australia, and remarkably came back to, to draw the series 2 all. And that was largely down to Hutton, who scored two remarkably patient and determined centuries, also down to Trevor Bailey and Brian Statham. So the cricket was remarkable. In the in the last um, test, Gary Sobers, who I know you've interviewed in the past, um, uh, made his first appearance and became the youngest player to take a wicket in test cricket. In the first test, George Headley, you know, the previous legend of West Indian cricket, made his yeah. last appearance. You've got people on the England side like Statham and Truman, Laker and Locke, um, Peter May, Tom Graveney. On the West Indian side, you've got the three Ws and you've got um, the spin twins, Ramadan and Valentine. Once I started getting into it, we might come on to some of the other incidents on top of that, you know, that Bodyline didn't have. There was a riot, a stand got burnt down, probably through arson. An umpire's family was attacked. Truman and Wardle allegedly racially abused an umpire. Um, the West Indian captain was booed by his own crowd. Hutton was booed for the slowest day in Test cricket, 128 runs and 114 overs. Um, there were various incidents. Tom Graveney nearly got sent home for swearing at someone in an, at a naval function, and then he threw the ball down in Trinidad. Tony Lott was no ball for throwing. So it was all going off. So like you, it was when I first came to it, and I came to it through Hutton's last memoir, 50 Years in Cricket, many years ago when I was actually doing something else. It's funny how the material kind of comes to you sometimes. I just found it extraordinary. That there's, there's been 20 books about Bodyline, some of them very good. And apart from the two books that were written at the time by E.W. Swanton, and Alex Bannister of the Daily Mail. There'd been no books about this tour. So I just felt it was something that people might find interesting. And I've certainly found it interesting. And of course, as well as the cricket, which we've talked about, the background of race and class, you've mentioned that Hutton was the first professional captain yeah. in the modern era. So this is the first time ever MCC go abroad with a professional captain. And lots of people at MCC didn't really want that to happen. I think they were keener for David Shepherd to do it. And then in the West Indies, Frank Worrell was... Jeff Stolmar's vice-captain. So that's the first time a black man has ever been in a leadership position in West Indian cricket. Uh, well, there's a few exceptions. Headley and Constantine very occasionally were, but only sort of on suffering. It's the first formal appointment. So we're on the way to that journey where Worrell becomes captain of West Indies, but that doesn't happen until 1960-61. So you've got these two stories, sometimes interlinked, of racial issues and class issues. And national identity issues, you know, in, the, in the, this question of whether cricket is for national prestige or not. And the West Indies is not actually a nation. It's a construct, you know. It's... You are listening to the Cricket Badger podcast. Let's, let's go go back a step, because before yeah. the tour, England had just beaten Australia. Um, That's right. They, 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 they'd got the ashes. Um, West Indies had uh, had started a really good run, hadn't they? A very strong side West Indies had got. And it was billed as the, the World Championship of Cricket. Um, this this series was going to be billed as that, but as you say, there was there were all of these things going on in the background, the kind of the sociological kind of elements of race and mm. and how each of those um, 
nations, as you say, West Indies is not a nation, a number of different islands, how they saw themselves. And I, I can't remember who it was in, your, in at the start of your book who said that the West Indies didn't seem to come together as a team and see themselves as the West Indies unless they were overseas uh, and playing England or something as a unit. When yes. they were back home, they were a number of different islands. And as we know, there's been plenty of politics between those islands in the past. Yes. Yes, that's a very good point, James. Yes, so, so my book sort of starts with 1950. You know, the, the, the famous cricket, lovely cricket, Calypso, is about the first West Indian victory, which very symbolically yeah. took place at Lord, and then they won the series 3-1. Um, Hutton played for England in he was injured in one game but played in most of those games because so, somebody makes the point don't they it wasn't just at Laws this was the headquarters yes. of the, yeah they, they've it's gone to enemy territory to absolutely there was a great symbolism to it and two other things one you've mentioned the fact that the Windrush generation I mean Lord Kitchener and Lord uh, Beginner who were meant to have written that Calypso there's some question as to who wrote most of it mm. but they both actually literally came together on the on the Empire Windrush in 1948 so there was this sense I think of a new feeling of West Indianness, if you like, that ironically happened as um, people from the Caribbean migrated to England. Lots of intellectuals did as well. A feeling more of we're all together. And part of that symbolism was that Ramadan was the first, in inverted commas, Indian player to play for the West Indies. You know, there were, there were very large Indian communities mm. in Trinidad and uh, British Ghana. Ramadan was from Trinidad. And so when they're called Little Pals, they're obviously Little Pals in the sense they're Little Pals of all the fans who were there. And there was a reasonably big West Indian contingent there to celebrate, but also their pals across the divides of that ethnic divide. And also one is from Trinidad, one is from Jamaica. So there's this great feeling in 1950 that at last the West Indies had achieved real, real. I mean, it was partly a stereotype, to be fair, that they fell apart under pressure. I mean, a stereotype that, of course, carried on for a long time with the infamous remarks of Tony Gregg and so forth. But I think there was some truth to the fact that the individual islands were prouder of themselves than of that West Indian identity. So 1950 is very important for that for that reason. But you're right, when we go back to the West Indies, there's always a degree of squat. First of all, some of the islands are very close together. You know, they can see each other. But the distances involved, particularly when we think of Jamaica, are quite large. You know, Jamaica is nearly as far away from British Guyana as London is from Moscow. And in the days before air travel, or consistent air travel, you know, they, they were distant in that sense, but they also always fought with each other. There were arguments about who should be captain, how many players from each island should play. So in the 1950s, and of course, this is where CLR James ends up writing his book at the end of the decade. There's this feeling that the cricket team is the first unified. The University of the West Indies was founded in the 1950s as well. But the cricket team was the first unified British Caribbean entity. And the intention was at that time that the islands would become independent. It was taking a long time, far too long, as far as many people in the Caribbean were concerned. But the, the, uh, the islands would become independent in federation, you know, a bit like the EU today. And there were arguments reminiscent of Brexit about whether that was a good idea. So you've got this tension in West Indian cricket between wanting to beat England in particular. They just lost in Australia, actually. Linwall and Miller were too much of them in Australia. But they'd never been beaten on their home soil. So it was a built up big time in the West Indies as kind of this is this is a world championship. And obviously in a, in a similar way, although MCC had a feeling they needed to be diplomats, they wanted to win badly too. So the, there's, the a, there's a sense at the start of, the, of, of your book about how the English hierarchy saw themselves as almost better than everybody else. They'd been the kind of the empire, they'd been the colonialism. It's our game that we've given to yes. other people to make other people better. We're educating you. We're bringing you up kind of thing, rather than actually you're our equals in this battle. Yes, I think that would be fair. I mean, that had happened 
to be fair to almost all test playing nations, you know, even Australia, South Africa, India, all go through these processes of until they've beaten England at Lords, they're not considered to be sort of equal partners. And I think that's very true, James. To be fair, uh, or however paternalistic and patronising it was, it should be recorded, I think, that, that many of the people in the MCC hierarchy over time, although this sense of a civilising mission can be quite insulting if you, if you think about it in some ways, they did genuinely love Caribbean cricket. Lord Harris was born in Trinidad. His father was the governor there. Pelham Warner was born in Trinidad and went to boarding school in Barbados. And he, funnily enough, way back in 1900, when his brother led the first West Indies tour to England, there was some question of whether, you know, black and brown players should be included. And he said it would be absurd for them not to be included. So the MCC attitude to these things is not all bad. You know, that some credit should be given to them. He also made Constantine captain of a Dominions team long before that would have been accepted generally. But on the other side of the ledger, you're right, I think, that they had this view of cricket as the sort of game of the empire that bound everybody together. And in a quite paternalistic way, that caused problems for Hutton because, of course, they wanted Hutton to win, but they also wanted everything to go off without a smell and, and for, for you know the British to set the right, right tone and example. So that did end up causing Hutton quite a few problems on the ground. He kept getting these telegrams from Lord saying, you know, speed up, slow down, do this, do that. And that wasn't helpful to him, you know, in a very difficult series where, where the cricket was very tough. Badges are furry creatures. 85% of women badges think bad grooming is a major turn-off. 80% of women badges think men should trim below the belt. 89% of men think good grooming is essential to the professional success. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. Get on there, manscaped.com. Check out their great range of male grooming accessories. Hygiene, appearance, attractiveness, confidence. Simply go to manscaped.com, quote the discount code BADGER. You get 20% off, you get free shipping, and you get some seriously quality equipment. Manscaped.com, together we save balls. There was one period, wasn't there, on that trip where the team rebelled against Hutton because Hutton was playing quite a cagey game. He was desperate not to lose rather than really yes. playing for win. And a few of the players felt he should be a little bit more attacking. The, the, the run rate was rather poor, wasn't it, for quite a yes. while? I think that was the crucial turning point in the series. I mean, I suppose the West Indies, when they got ahead, because Jeff Stolmeyer was a great admirer of Hutton and of Yorkshire cricket, played it as tough as he did and probably went on the defensive too much. But yes, you're right. Hutton came out with the attitude, I think partly because of the fact he'd been through so much against Australia. If you remember, he scored the 3-6-4 before the war and Bradman in particular singled him out for punishment, I suppose. You know, for three series, you had Lindwall and Miller trying to take his head off and also aiming the ball at his arm, which he damaged in the war. So Hutton had a bit of an obsession with the Australian attitude to cricket. So he came out to the West Indies and said, we've got to do these We've got to do these people. I mean, those, I think, were the words that Godfrey Evans reported him saying. We've got to do them. And that also meant that he thought the Australians often perhaps unfairly, he thought the Australians didn't fraternise with the opposition, you know, were very tough in that regard. And so he took that attitude with him, which, of course, went down very badly in the West Indies, where, where the, the connotations of not mixing mm. were particularly inflammatory. But on the pitch, yes, he had a very, you know, his attitude was we're going to bounce them out. So Truman and Statham were under orders to bowl quite short. 
ironically, there were there was more short pitch bowling from England than the West Indies in this series. So George Headley, the great hero, got injured in a warm up game. So that didn't go down well. But you're absolutely right. In terms of batting, his attitude was grind them down. And as I say, this reached its nadir in the first innings of the second test where England scored um, you know, 128 runs and 114 overs. And that, at the time, it was broken in Pakistan a few years later. But that was the slowest day in Test cricket. So everyone was booing. You know, the schoolboys, there was a schoolboy stand. They were particularly angry because their um, entrance fee had been increased by the <laughs> local board. It didn't work. England had to, well, could have followed on. The follow-on wasn't enforced. And the story is that people like Dennis Compton, Godfrey Evans, Trevor Bailey, Tom Graveney, all went to Hutton and said, look, you know, this this can't really carry on. We're just we're just losing by adopting these tactics. And to be fair to Hutton, he was never a man, uh, I think John Arlott said, he was never a man voluntarily to share his troubles. But he was a very wise man. And I think he realised they were right. So gradually, England changed their tactics, played a bit more attacking. It has to be said, actually, that Compton and Evans played very slow innings to support Hutton. I mean, in fact, they ended up with slower run rates than Hutton. But that, that change was very important, and England came out a bit more attacking. And in the third test, Statham bowled a brilliant spell, took three wickets, crucial wickets early on, and they managed to win that match. And then Trevor Bailey took seven for 34 in Jamaica. And from looking, as I say, it looked almost like where Joe Root was after two games. They, they got it back to two all. Going back to the, the previous um, points about England seeing themselves as kind of giving the game to the world. Mm. I, you seem to kind of that there are parallels with a lot of these things with current day, aren't there? Because I've seen, you know, when, when England were playing India, a lot of the Indians are saying, who are you to tell me what the spirit of cricket is? We're making our right. own way in the game now. And yeah, the, these, these countries are getting their own self-identification, aren't they, as cricket teams? And they're, they're yeah. now saying, well, we want to play like this. Who are you to tell us differently? Yeah. And I guess that's what the West Indies were in, in a similar way back then. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, West Indies in those days, you know, only tended, like India, only tended to get three tests. So, that, you know, when they came to England. So one of Worrell's big points when he won in 1963 was, you know, we want to have, we want to come more often and we want to have uh, more tests. And there was an added complication, I think, at the time, in that you have nationalist people, as you say, James, very proudly saying, you know, we've developed this game ourselves. You know, people like Weeks and Walcott bat in a different way to... Pelham Warner, you know, we've got these great spinners. We've, we've got a tradition of fast bowling, although that was a little bit not working in 1953-54. But you've also got in the West Indies, you know, the white settlers, the the e- either people who were working for the colonial office, and there was still a lot of civil servants, but also the people who, who'd settled in the West Indies, you know, and owned the sugar plantations and so on. And they, of course, were desperately worried about, first of all, a team of generally black and brown cricketers beating England, that was bad enough because they were sort of trying to resist the movement towards independence. But they also had this big thing about manners, you know, and playing the spirit of cricket. They were telling Hutton two different things. They were saying you've got a bit, they were actually saying to people like the manager, Charles Palmer, this is a matter of life and death. You've got to beat these people. And they were talking about their own countrymen, of course. And to be fair, I think many white people in the West Indies would support the team. You know, they would pass the notorious Tebbit test. But that was an extra problem in that they were fixated on the spirit of cricket and chivalry and good scoring. And, of course, they were the, the loudest critics of Hutton on the ground in the, in, the, in the Caribbean on that tour. So that provided an extra tension on top of the, the sort of 
feeling of being patronised that you you rightly mentioned that, that was held by nationalist people. One of the things looking through the scorecards of the series that really stands out to me is the overrates um, because we yes. talk about how slow the game is these days and you look through um, the scorecards that you've compiled here and I know you've gone back a little bit and kind of pieced a few things together off some of the old scorebooks but it's like 19 overs an hour, 22 overs an hour, 21 overs an hour. Yeah. It seems to be like an average of certainly in the high teens if not in the, in the, twen- in the low 20s. It just shows it can be done, doesn't it? <laughs> Yes, it does. I mean, I suppose the game has changed quite a bit. You know, even when I was young and you, you were young, you know, we'll remember, I remember Mike Brearley having to run between overs because the TCCB had said 16 overs an hour was a bare minimum. And we had the over rates in county cricket, if you remember, that had to be 18 and so on. But yes, when, when Ramadan and Valentine were bowling together, you could have 23 overs an hour. And this is actually one of the first tours. Hutton was a believer in slowing it down. Um, so he slowed it down to 14 in the first test when England was sort of struggling. And, of course, in Australia the next winter, he was much criticised for slowing it right down when Tyson and Statham were bowling. So I suppose Hutton is one of the first people to use that as a tactic in Test cricket. But I think he would argue, well, all these games, or many of them, finished well within the five days anyway, and I've got to look after my bowlers. And, in fact, it got him into a lot of trouble with Gubby Allen back in England, because Gubby Allen was a great believer in fast over rates. You know, he was very proud of the fact that when he led a team to defeat in Australia, they bowled their overs very fast. So interestingly, in those days, I would say the MCC were almost more concerned with county cricket than with test cricket. I mean, they had an equal importance, you know, we're very different to now. So one of the things that worried the MCC about Hutton, remember, there's no limited overs cricket in those days. The Gillette Cup starts in 1963. So in those days, the county championship was the only domestic competition. The MCC didn't really recognise league cricket up in the north, up in Lancashire and Yorkshire as as proper cricket. You know, So what they were worried about, one of the things they were worried about, as well as the diplomatic problems, was that the tactics of people like Hutton and Bailey were not what they wanted to see in the county championship. Because without one-day cricket, the county championship was slowly declining in popularity. You know, after the war, it was extraordinarily popular. Mm. But the ironic thing is when you compare it to today, when we're all worried about the county championship not getting any support, um, it was the other way around almost. For example, in the Coronation Ashes, which you mentioned earlier, you know, there was television then, but the MCC only allowed the BBC to broadcast two and a half hours of it live because they were worried about the attendances at the county championship games. Again, very different to where we are now, where we want to see test cricket on free-to-air, don't we, if we, if we believe in the future of the game. So the, the slow over rates was something that I think Hutton was connected with, and that was one of the reasons MCC wanted to get rid of him. Ironically, when Worrell became captain of the the West Indies, although he was famous for entertaining cricket, and rightly so, he was not averse to slowing the over rate down uh, when he had to. Do you remember that famous test in 63 when um, Cowdery had to come out with his arm in plaster yeah. and Brian Close got all the bruises? They often show that photograph of Brian Close as if it was 76. That was 63 when he got covered in bruises. Well, in that match, because West Indies were trying to save it, it was Worrell who bowled at 14 and out. You know, in England, you were bowling at 19. So it's never sort of simple in terms of one side using those tactics. But I think it's I, I often 19- think that, David, when it comes to when people talk about, oh, they should be penalised runs and they should, you know, the feeling side, because often it's the batting side sometimes that slows it down. There's all, the, you know, particularly in current day when yes. people are bringing gloves out and everything like that. There are, it's not just as simple as saying, well, this is the fault of the bowling side. But there was a there was a little passage of play in the in the most recent Ashes test where I think Mark Wood was almost running back to his mark to try and get another over in before lunch. Yes. It, it can be done. It can be done of this. Course. 
Jacob and I sent the badger a message and now I'm on the podcast with this jingle. If you would like to get in touch with the Cricket Badger podcast, then tweet at cricket underscore badger. Let's go back to the the controversy. I always think with with the things like this, and you 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 put the the actual series and the in the um, events on the pitch very good uh, in in the book. But you can see the scorecards for yourself. You can see the averages. You can see what's happened. It's the stuff off the pitch that um, I often think people are, are are the most interested in. And this was a controversial tour, wasn't it? I mean, Tom Graveney been on record as to say it might go down as the most unpleasant, most controversial of all time, even ahead of Bodyline in yeah. those stakes. Clyde Walcott had, had said he felt the series um, could cause a greater storm than Bodyline. Talk me through some of the um, the controversies, like the, the top five controversies of this yeah. tour. Yeah, I mean, I think in the index, I, was try- I tried to list the major incidents and the minor incidents, and the major ones, I think I listed 18 in the end. <laughs> so we haven't probably got time for all of them, but I suppose the most famous one of all is in the third test in British Guyana, as it was then, now Guyana, which was Britain's only possession on the mainland of South America. There was a a riot in the third test. You know, I think that's the first time there was a riot in a test match in modern times. I think in Australia, a couple of times in the 19th century, there'd been disturbances, you know, but, you know, bottles were thrown, wooden cases on the pitch, people encroached on the pitch. Tony Locke said, I thought we'd had our chips, you know, when these people started running at him. Hutton was advised to go off the field by the local officials and and refused to do so because he wanted another wicket that night, I think. So, you know, the, the reaction to that riot was one of sort of people felt shame about it in the West Indies. What, what and, caused the riot? <clears throat> well, the, the the obvious cause was the fact that a, a, West, a, a Guyanese batsman, a very good wicketkeeper called Cliff McWatt, was run out going for a second run. And that would have been the 100 partnership. It would have nearly helped save the follow-on. So this one theory, which Der- uh, Dennis Compton had, he was an inveterate gambler, of course, was that everyone had a bet on, on the 100 partnership. So the, the spark for the riot was definitely that run out because it was perceived that the umpire, I mean, I think no one's in any doubt that it was out on, on either side. It could have been quite close. The argument is about how close it was. Mm. So that's what sparked it off. And when you read some accounts, you know, I'm not trying to get at E.W. Swanson because he actually was a very fair reporter of this series. But, you know, he would be talking about bad, you know, bad sportsmanship and poor manners. The background to it is that the British Guyana was under a state of emergency in 1953-54. There'd been democratic elections where sort of quite left-wing, in inverted commas, communist politicians were elected, a guy called Chedi Jagan and Forbes Burnham. And Churchill basically decided that they were just a bit too communist or Marxist for his liking. So he suspended the constitution. He actually referred to it in his Tory party conference speech that year. They brought in a battalion of the Sutherland and Argyle Highlanders who were sort of patrolling the streets in their kilts or in their shorts. And the um, some of the politicians were under house arrest, not all of them. Um, Jagan was late. In fact, Jagan was arrested on the last day of the test series and, and sent to the interior. So this is the background to the thing. And, you know, the, the two politicians had been on a little world tour to try and drum up support for their cause. They came back during the warm up game, during the tour match. So there was a very incendiary atmosphere behind what was going on. Now, was the riot political or not? No one can really say. But I certainly think that atmosphere meant that it was almost inevitable mm. there was going to be some kind of trouble. And of course, the English things were a little bit and- fractious. To say the least. I mean, yes. I don't think you put a an international sports team into that kind of environment today. You know, I mean, the one it reminds me of a bit is, do you remember that tour of uh, Pakistan uh, in the late 60s when 
all the trouble that was going to happen in Bangladesh was certainly starting. Colin Cowdery, I think, was the captain. And they actually did abort that tour. They came back. But I think, it, you know, today, I think it would be it would be extraordinary to put a sporting team into that. I well, mean, Hutton called it a, yeah. The, the, the most, most recent one was, I guess, um, Zimbabwe, wasn't it? When it was at World Cup, when yeah. Nasser and Atherton and everybody sat down and, and discussed the players, almost decided whether they were, they were going to go or not. But I guess back in in the fifties, it was more the MCC dictated what was going to happen. Yes, well, well, I think I suppose as well the the propaganda is probably the wrong word. But, you know, the line of the both the British government and the MCC would be this was just a perfectly normal thing in the sense mm. that nationalist politicians had exceeded their remit and and they were just doing something constitutional. Of course, in the Caribbean. There was a very, very different view of that. And uh, I think the cricketers, they were briefed by um, Sir Walter Munton, the, the Minister of Labour, before they went. But they complained they didn't really have much detail on it. Mm. And I think that they just weren't really equipped to understand some of the sen- local sensitivities. You know, they were quite arrogant about the accommodation and things like that, which, again, very much upset people who were sort of saying it's time for the British to leave. So... That context, yes, I mean, I suppose you're right about Zimbabwe. I mean, one thinks also of, um, you know, the Peterson tour when that bomb sadly went off in. But that's a slightly different thing. You know, something happened just before they were going, whereas everybody knew the situation in the West Indies. And even in the other islands, you know, in Jamaica, there was lots of labour unrest. And the situation was quite tricky. In Trinidad, <clears throat> we're just getting to the point where Eric Williams launches his nationalist movement. He literally does it. He's actually having the, the first meetings about it while the MCC are there. So, you know, it was a very febrile atmosphere and it, it increased the problems when incidents occurred. Controversy number two. Let's bill it as that. Controversy number two. <laughs> well, let's think. I mean, I mean, I suppose one that was um, that caused a lot of trouble was, <clears throat> I mean, we think of Tom Gravely now as a vuncular chap, and I think he was. You know, he was very well liked on tour um, by his teammates. But uh, as well as getting into trouble for the incident at the Naval Club, in the fourth test, the, the fourth test was played on a matting wicket. So, you know, it was a very dead, flat wicket. So West Indies were 2-1 up. Parton lost the toss. You know, it was going to be a big deal for England to try and do anything in that game. And they got towards lunch. It was about 80 for one. And a West Indian player called John Holt Ch- uh, Compton was actually bowling his Chinaman and, and so on. And he actually showed in the Chinaman, then bowled him McGoogley, and Holt nicked it to Tom Gravely, waist high, according to all reports. And it happened to be the last um, ball before lunch. So all the England players started walking off. But hang on a minute, the umpire, Elisa Chong, uh, said not out. And Gravely hurled the ball to the floor. He literally just hurled it to the floor, left it there, and stormed off. And this led to the England team being booed all around the ground not only by the crowd, but by the white members in the pavilion. At the time, it was very... Of course, nowadays, we think of all the kinds of things players can... ways players can shade his head. At the time, it was considered extremely unusual, and it got Gravely into quite a bit of trouble. Obviously, then there was a big argument about should the umpire have given him out? Should the batsman have walked? There was a little bit of history, actually, between Elisa Chong. <clears throat> Some, do you remember, there's, a, there's a story that Elisa Chong, who himself was a spinner, actually gave his name to the Chinaman. You know, because uh, I'm not sure that's actually true. But anyway, that's one irony. But another irony is there was a bit of a feeling between him and Hutton because years ago in a Bradford League game, Hutton needed four to get a collection, you know, to get 50. Yeah. And Elisa Chong deliberately bowled the ball down the for four wide so he couldn't have a collection. So I don't think they liked each other. But that incident caused a lot of ill will in Trinidad. And the game eventually became a draw. But uh, it was right on both sides, I think. Of course, this is before neutral umpires. We forget that in almost 
I mean, we're old enough to remember what, the time before neutral empires, but in that era, I think almost any touring team, be it England away, be it the West Indies away, had complaints about the umpiring, you know, that, that it was mm. felt that the umpiring well, was, was biased. Mike Gatting, Shakur Rana, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Indeed, and um, this was before the incident with Idris Beg in Pakistan on the A-Tour, you know, he was famously dunked by Brian Close under a under a, a bucket of water and so on. I think, I mean, to be fair, I don't think the umpiring was particularly biased. It may have been slightly incompetent at times. E.W. Swanton, you know, felt that um, the umpires were of a reasonably high standard. I think England just it just got on their backs, particularly when Tony Locke was no ball for throwing, which, again, I think no one at the time really felt that Tony Locke wasn't throwing his quicker ball. But the English certainly got it into their heads that everything was against them. And I think this is obviously before the time of 24 cameras in the ground and, and yes. slow-mo replays to actually verify or deny an action, I guess, isn't it as well? Absolutely. You've got one look at it. And there wasn't, I think, there was certainly a news a dispute uh, on the newsreel um, the, in 1950. I'm not aware of being any newsreel coverage of this tour. Trevor Bailey and Charles Parler took some amateur film, and I was very lucky to have access to that. Trevor Bailey's son very kindly lent me his okay. um, cinefilm. But there's no professional coverage so all you're relying on is the newspaper reports really that there was live radio in the west indies in fact people might not realize the west indies had uninterrupted ball by ball commentary long before the british sports social podcast network it's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.